0: Section twenty seven of Roxana by Daniel Defoe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. And now my spouse and I began to think of going over to Holland, where I had proposed to him to live, and in order to settle all the preliminaries of our future manner of living. I began to draw in my effects, so as to have them all at command, upon whatever occasion we thought fit, after which one morning I called my spouse up to me. Hark ye, sir, said I to him, I have two very weighty questions to ask of you. I don't know what answer you will give to the first, but I doubt you will be able to give but a sorry answer to the other. And yet I assure you, it is of the last importance to yourself, and towards the future part of your life, wherever it is to be. He did not seem to be much alarmed, because he could see I was speaking in a kind of merry way. Let's hear your questions, my dear, says he, and I'll give the best answer I can to them. Why first, says I, 1. You have married a wife here, made her a lady, and put her in expectation of being something else still when she comes abroad. Pray, have you examined whether you are able to supply all her extravagant demands when she comes abroad and maintain an expensive English woman in all her pride and vanity? In short, have you inquired whether you are able to keep her? 2. You have married a wife here and given her a great many fine things, and you maintain her like a princess and sometimes call her so. Pray, what? portion have you had with her? What fortune has she been to you, and where does her estate lie, that you keep her so fine? I am afraid that you keep her in a figure a great deal above her estate, at least above all that you have seen of it yet. And you sure you ain't got a bite, and that you have not made a beggar a lady? Well, says he, have you any more questions to ask? Let's have them all together. Perhaps they may all be answered in a few words, as well as these two. No, says I, these are the two grand questions, at least for the present. Why, then, says he, I'll answer you in a few words, that I am fully master of my own circumstances, and without farther inquiry can let my wife you speak of know that, as I have made her a lady, I can maintain her as a lady, wherever she goes with me and this whether i have one pistole of her portion or whether she has any portion or no and as i have not inquired whether she has any portion or not so she shall not have the less respect showed her from me or be obliged to live meaner or be any way straitened on that account on the contrary if she goes abroad to live with me in my own country i will make her more than a lady and support the expense of it too without meddling with anything she has, and this, I suppose, says he, contains an answer to both your questions together. He spoke this with a great deal more earnestness in his countenance than I had when I proposed my questions, and said a great many kind things upon it as a consequence of former discourses, so that I was obliged to be in earnest too. My dear, says I, I was but in jest in my questions, but they were proposed to introduce what I am going to say to you in earnest, namely that if I am to go abroad, tis time I should let you know how things stand, and what I have to bring you with your wife, how it is to be disposed and secured and the like, and therefore come, says I, sit down and let me show you your bargain here, I hope you'll find that you have not got a wife without a fortune. He told me then that since he found I was in earnest, he desired that I would adjourn it till tomorrow, and then we would do as the poor people do after they marry, feel in their pockets and see how much money they can bring together in the world. Well, says I with all my heart, and so we ended our talk for that time. As this was in the morning, my spouse went out after dinner to his goldsmith, as he said, and about three hours after returns with a porter and two large boxes with him, and his servant brought another box, which, I observed, was almost as heavy as the two that the porter brought, and made the poor fellow sweat heartily. He dismissed the porter, and in a little while after went out again with his man and returning at night, brought another porter with more boxes and bundles, and all was carried up, and put into a chamber next to our bedchamber, and in the morning he called for a pretty large round table, and began to unpack. When the boxes were opened, I found they were chiefly full of books and papers and parchments. I mean books of accounts, and of writings, and such things as were in themselves of no moment to me, because I understood them not. But I perceived he took them all out, and spread them about him upon the table and chairs, and began to be be very busy with them. So I withdrew and left him, and he was indeed so busy among them that he never missed me, till I had been gone a good while. But when he had gone through all his papers, and had come to open a little box, he called for me again. Now, says he, and called me his countess, I am ready to answer your first question." if you will sit down till i have opened this box we will see how it stands so we opened the box there was in it indeed what i did not expect for i had thought he had sunk his estate rather than raised it but he produced me in goldsmith's bills and stock in the english east india company about sixteen thousand pounds sterling then he gave into my hands nine assignments upon the bank of lyons in france and two upon the rents of the town-house in paris amounting in the whole to five thousand eight hundred crowns per annum or annual rent as it is called there and lastly the sum of thirty thousand rix dollars in the bank of amsterdam besides some jewels and gold in the box to the value of about one thousand five hundred pounds or one thousand six hundred pounds amongst which was a very good necklace of pearl, about two hundred pounds value, and that he pulled out and tied around my neck, telling me that should not be reckoned into the account. I was equally pleased and surprised, and it was with an inexpressible joy that I saw him so rich you might well tell me said i that you were able to make me countess and maintain me as such in short he was immensely rich for besides all this he showed me which was the reason of his being so busy among the books i say he showed me several adventures he had brought in the business of his merchandise as particularly an eighth Share in an East India ship then abroad, an account current with a merchant at Cadiz in Spain, about three thousand pounds lent upon bottomly, upon ships gone to the Indies, and a large cargo of goods in a merchant's hands for sale at Lisbon in Portugal, so that in his books there was about twelve thousand pounds more, all which put together paid about. 27000 pounds sterling and 1320 pounds a year i stood amazed at this account as well i might and said nothing to him for a good while and the rather because i saw him still busy looking over his books after a while as i was going to express my wonder oh my dear says he this it not all neither and then he pulled me out some old seals and small parchment rolls which i did not understand but he told me they were a right of reversion which he had to a paternal estate in his family and a mortgage of fourteen thousand rix dollars which he had about him in the hands of the present possessor so that was about three thousand pounds more but now hold again says he for i must pay my debts out of all this they are very great i assure you and the first he said was a black article of eight thousand pistoles which he had a lawsuit about at paris but had it awarded against him which was the loss he had told me of and which made him leave paris in disgust that in other accounts he owed about five thousand three hundred pounds sterling after all this, upon the whole, he had still seventeen thousand pounds clear stock in money and one thousand three hundred and twenty pounds a year in rent. After some pause it came to my turn to speak. Well, says I, it is very hard a gentleman with such a fortune as this should come over to England and marry a wife with nothing. It shall never, says I, be said, but what I have I'll bring into the public stock. So I began to produce. First I pulled out the mortgage which Good Sir Robert had procured me, the annual rent of £700 per annum, the principal money £14,000. Secondly I pulled out another mortgage upon land, procured by the same faithful friend which at three times had advanced £12,000. Thirdly I pulled him out a parcel of little securities, procured by several hands by fee-farm rents and such petty mortgages as those times afforded, amounting to £10,800 principal money, and paying £636 a year, so that in a whole there was £2,056 a year ready money constantly coming in. When I had shown him all these, I laid them upon the table, and bade him take them, that he might be able to give me an answer to the second question. What a fortune he had with his wife! And laughed a little at it. He looked at them a while and then handed them all back again to me. I will not touch them, says he, nor one of them, till they are settled in trustees' hands for your own use and the management wholly your own. I cannot omit what happened to me while all this was acting, though it was cheerful work in the main yet I trembled every joint of me worse for aught i know than ever belshazzar did at the handwriting on the wall and the occasion was every way as just unhappy wretch said i to myself shall my ill-got wealth the product of prosperous lust and of a vile vicious life of whoredom and adultery be intermingled with the honest well-gotten estate of this innocent gentleman to be a moth and a caterpillar among it and bring the judgments of heaven upon him and upon what he has for my sake shall my wickedness blast his comforts shall i be fire in his flax and be a means to provoke heaven to curse his blessing god forbid i'll keep them asunder if it be possible this was the true reason why i have been so particular in the account of my vast acquired stock and how his estate which was perhaps the product of many years fortunate industry and which was equal if not superior to mine at best was at my request kept apart from mine as is mentioned above i have told you how he gave back all my writings into my own hands again well says i seeing you will have it be kept apart it shall be so upon one condition which i have to propose and no other what is the condition says he why says i all the pretence i can have for the making over of my estate to me is that in case of your mortality i may have it reserved for me if i outlive you well says he that is true but then said i the annual income is always received by the husband during his life as tis supposed for the mutual subsistence of the family now says i here is two thousand pounds a year which I believe is as much as we shall spend, and I desire none of it may be saved. And all the income of your own estate, the interest of the £17,000 and the £1,320 a year may be constantly laid by for the increase of your estate, and so, added I, by joining the interest every year to the capital, you will perhaps grow as rich as you would do if you were to trade with it all, if you were obliged to keep house out of it too. He liked the proposal very much, said it should be so, and this way I in some measure satisfied myself that I should not bring my husband under the blast of a just providence for mingling my cursed ill-gotten wealth with his honest estate. This was occasioned by the reflections which, at some certain intervals of time, came into my thoughts of the justice of heaven, which I had reason to expect would some time or other still fall upon me or my effects for the dreadful life I had lived and let nobody conclude from the strange success i met with in all my wicked doings and the vast estate which i had raised by it that therefore i was either happy or easy no no there was a dart struck into the liver there was a secret hell within even all the while when our joy was at the highest but more especially now after it was all over and when, according to all appearance, I was one of the happiest women upon earth. All this while, I say, I had such constant terror upon my mind as gave me every now and then very terrible shocks, and which made me expect something very frightful upon every accident of life. In a word, it never lightened or thundered, but I expected the next flash would penetrate my vitals and melt the sword soul in this scabbard of flesh. It never blew a storm of wind, but I expected the fall of some stack of chimneys, or some part of the house would bury me in its ruins, and so of other things. But I shall perhaps have occasion to speak of all these things again by and by. The case before us was in a manner settled. We had full four thousand pounds per annum for our future subsistence, besides a vast sum in jewels and plate, and besides this I had about eight thousand pounds reserved in money, which I kept back from him to provide for my two daughters, of whom I have much yet to say. With this estate settled, as you have heard, and with the best husband in the world I left England again. I had not only human prudence, and by the nature of the thing, being now married and settled in so glorious a manner, I say I had not only abandoned all the gay and wicked courses which I had gone through before, but I began to look back upon it with that horror and that detestation which is the certain companion, if not the forerunner, of repentance. Sometimes the wonders of my present circumstances would work upon me, I should have some raptures upon my soul, upon the subject of my coming so smoothly out of the arms of hell, that I was not engulfed in ruin, as most who led such lives are, first or last, but this was a flight too high for me. I was not come to that repentance that is raised from a sense of heaven's goodness. I repented of the crime, but it was of another and lower kind of repentance and rather moved by my fears of vengeance than from a sense of being spared from being punished, and landed safe after a storm. The first thing which happened after our coming to the Hague, where we lodged for a while, was that my spouse saluted me one morning with the title of Countess, as he said he intended to do by having the inheritance to which the honour was annexed made over to him. It is true it was a reversion, but it soon fell, and in the meantime, as all the brothers of a Count are called Counts, so I had the title by courtesy about three years before I had it in reality. I was agreeably surprised at this coming so soon, and would have had my spouse have taken the money which tossed him out of my stock, but he laughed at me and went on. I was now in the height of my glory and prosperity and I was called Countess, for I had obtained that unlooked-for which I secretly aimed at, and was really the main reason of my coming abroad. I took now more servants, lived in a kind of magnificence that I had not been acquainted with, was called your honour at every word, and had a coronet behind my coach, though at the same time I knew little or nothing of my new pedigree first thing that my spouse took upon him to manage was to declare ourselves married eleven years before our arriving in holland and consequently to acknowledge our little son who was yet in england to be legitimate order him to be brought over and added to his family and acknowledge him to be our own this was done by giving notice to his people at nijmegen where his children which were two sons and a daughter were brought up that he was come over from england that he was arrived at the Hague with his wife, and should reside there some time, and that he would have his two sons brought down to see him, which accordingly was done, where I entertained him with all the kindness and tenderness that they could expect from their mother-in-law, and who pretended to be so ever since they were two or three years old. This supposing us to have been so long married was not difficult at all, in a country where we had been seen together about that time. It was over eleven years and a half before, where we had never been seen afterwards till we now returned together, this being seen together was also openly owned and acknowledged, of course by a friend, the merchant at Rotterdam, and also by the people in the house where we both lodged in the same city, and where our first intimacies began, and who, as it happened, were all alive. And therefore, to make it more public, we made a tour of Rotterdam again, lodged in the same house, and was visited there by our friend, the merchant, and afterwards invited frequently to his house, where he treated us very handsomely. This conduct of my spouse, and which he managed very cleverly, was indeed a testimony of a wonderful degree of honesty and affection to our little son, for it was done purely for the sake of the children i call it an honest affection because it was from a principle of honesty that he so earnestly concerned himself to prevent the scandal which would otherwise have fallen upon the child who was itself innocent and as it was from this principle of justice that he so earnestly solicited me and conjured me by the natural affections of a mother, to marry him when it was not young within me, and unborn, that the child might not suffer for the sin of its father and mother, so though at the same time he really loved me very well. Yet I had reason to believe that it was from this principle of justice to the child, that he came to England again to seek me, with design to marry me, and as he called it, save the innocent lamb from infamy worse than death. It was with a just reproach to myself that I must repeat it again, that I had not the same concern for it, though it was the child of my own body. Nor had I ever the hearty, affectionate love to a child that he had. What the reason of it was I cannot tell, and indeed I had shown a general neglect of the child through all the gay years of my London revels except that I sent Amy to look upon it now and then, and to pay for its nursing, as for me I scarce sought it four times in the first four years of its life, and after wishing it would go quietly out of the world. Whereas a son which I had by the jeweller I took a different care of, showed I a different concern for, though I did not let him know me, for I provided very well for him, had him put out very well to school. When he came to years fit for it, let him go over with a person of honesty and good business to the Indies, and after he lived there some time, and began to act for himself, sent him over the value of two thousand pounds at several times, with which he traded, and grew rich, as tis to be hoped, may at last come over again with forty or fifty thousand pounds in his pocket, as many do who have not such encouragement at their beginning. I also sent him over a wife, a beautiful young lady, well-bred, an exceeding good-nature, pleasant creature, but the nice young fellow did not like her, and I had the impudence to write to me, that is, to the person I employed to correspond with him, to send him another, and promised that he would marry her I had sent him, to a friend of his, who liked her better than he did, but I took it so ill that I would not send him another, and withal stopped another article of a thousand pounds, which I had appointed to send him. He considered of it afterwards, and offered to take her, then truly she took so ill the first affront he put upon her that she would not have taken him. And I sent him word I thought she was very much in the right. However, after courting her two years and some friends interposing, she took him and made him an excellent wife, as I knew she would, but I never sent him the thousand-pound cargo, so that he lost that money for misusing me, and took the lady at last without it. My new spouse and I lived a very regular contemplative life, and in itself certainly a life filled with all human felicity. But if I looked upon my present situation with satisfaction, as I certainly did, so in proportion I on all occasions looked back on former things with detestation, and with the utmost affliction. And now indeed, and not till now, those reflections began to prey upon my comforts. And lessened the sweets of my other enjoyments. They might be said to have gnawed a hole in my heart before, but now they made a hole quite through it. Now they ate into all my pleasant things, made bitter every sweet, and mixed my sighs with every smile. Not all the affluence of a plentiful fortune, not a hundred thousand pounds estate, for between us we had little less, not honour and titles. Attendants and equipages, in a word, not all the things we call pleasure, could give me any relish, or sweeten the taste of things to me. At least not so much, but I grew sad, heavy, pensive and melancholy. Slept little and ate little dreamed continually of the most frightful and terrible things imaginable, nothing but apparitions of devils and monsters falling into gulfs, and off from steep and high precipices and the like. So that in the morning when I should rise and be refreshed with the blessing of rest, I was haggard and with frights and terrible things formed merely in the imagination, and was either tired and wanted sleep, or overrun with vapours and not fit for conversing with my family, or anyone else. My husband, the tenderest creature in the world, and particularly so to me was in great concern for me, and did everything that lay in his power to comfort and restore me, strove to reason me out of it, and tried all the ways possible to divert me, but it was all to no purpose, or to but very little. My only relief was sometimes to unbosom myself to poor Amy. She and I were alone, and she did all she could to comfort me. But all was to little effect there, for though Amy was the better penitent before, when we had been in the storm, Amy was just where she used to be now, a wild, gay, loose wretch, and not much the graver for her age. For Amy was between forty and fifty by this time, too. But to go on with my own story, as I had no comforter, so I had no counsellor, it was well, as I often thought, that I was not a Roman Catholic, for what a piece of work should I have made to have gone to a priest with such a history as I had to tell him, what penance would any father-confessor have obliged me to perform, especially if he had been honest and true to his office? however as i had none of the recourse so i had none of the absolution by which the criminal confessing goes away comforted but i went about with a heart loaded with crime and altogether in the dark as to what i was to do and in this condition i languished near two years i may well call it languishing for if providence had not relieved me I should have died in little time. But of that, hereafter. End of section 27